it is true, grief does not end. There is no timeline for it. There's no set prescription for it, how it works. It's different in everyone. But I think what, what I, sh but that becomes a mantra for people to allow themselves to sink deeper and deeper and deeper. I'm sure that my friend who dropped out of college was not like, sweet, I'm dropping out of college. This is wonderful. No, she like had every intention to go back, but then was just wallowing in the sadness for so long that it, it, it was no longer processing. It became just wallowing in self-flagellation um, and become self-punishment, right? So it, we have to be careful as we go through our grief work um, to make sure that we're using, we're doing it productively. Hello and welcome to Grief, Gratitude, and the Gray in Between podcast. This podcast is about exploring the grief that occurs at different times in our lives in which we have had major changes and transitions that literally shake us to the core and make us experience grief. I created this podcast for people to feel a little less hopeless and alone in their own grief process as they hear the stories of others who have had similar journeys. I'm Kendra Rinaldi, your host. Now, let's dive right into today's episode. Welcome to today's episode. Today, we have Dave Grammer with us, who's going to be sharing a little bit of his life story as well as his um, own journey with grief. So, Dave, welcome. Hi, thank you. I'm so excited you're here. Now, let's just start with like a few like getting to know you kind of questions. And actually, Dave and I have sure. never met. I've only met your wife over the phone, by the way. I've never <laughs> met your wife in person, even that, which is hilarious. But that I've like been friends with Roz for a while and I've never even mm -hmm. met her in person. Um, so that is just the world, right? Of, uh, yeah. of nowadays. We, it's we a digital know. universe. It is. Yeah. And we know each other through common friends and stuff. So, mm -hmm. um, so anyway, so yeah, tell us a little bit about you. Um, so I am a marriage and family, licensed marriage and family therapist in the Los Angeles area. Um, I've been in LA for about 15 years. Uh, my wife and I've been married for 10. We have two children. One is six and one is the baby is a year and a half and a chaotic dog. I know we were just talking about our, oh. our puppies. <laughs> energy How upon energy she? upon energy. She's uh, yeah. actually a month younger than the baby. So oh. <laughs> she's still a puppy. He's a baby. The six-year-old has boundless energy. And instead of tiring each other out, they feed into each other. So it's just tornado <laughs> upon tornado. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, that, that makes it fun and interesting for sure. I'm sure. What what time do you go to bed? Like at the at at the end of the day, like is it like, oh, let's go to bed, or do you guys normally want no. some like quiet time? <laughs> I need I need quiet time. So my wife works pretty early in the morning, so she goes to bed shortly after the boys do. But I tend to stay up a lot later just because I need that quiet time to myself that doesn't exist during the day. So. Right. And yeah. And now with the situation, because at this moment when we're interviewing. Um, all kids that in, um, mm -hmm. in LA area are still virtual learners mm -hmm. due to COVID. So you've been able to juggle leading oh, your work oh, life and the kids. Able is a strong word. 
hanging in there, hanging in there. <laughs> hanging in there is better, yeah, because our six-year-old just started kindergarten this year. And so he's been trying to learn what that means. What is kindergarten? What does school look like? He's been in preschool, but, you know, it's a bit different, the expectations and the standards. Um, so he's been learning that while also we signed him up prior to all of the COVID stuff. We signed him up for a dual immersion program to learn Mandarin Chinese. Okay. So he's trying to learn Chinese distance. It's a, like, so there's a lot of struggle with that. Um, but you know, we got the dog a week before the shutdown and the whole sales pitch to my wife was that Chase will be going to school. It'll be me and the baby, me and Connor got this. I can take the dog. I can train her. We'll do long walks. It'll be great. And a week later, everything shut down and Chase was home. The dog was home and there was no training or anything. And so it's been a little up in the air. Um, I typically see clients in the evenings when my wife gets home. So that has been able to continue. But it's been, you know, like every parent that's working from home or trying to, it's been challenging to do things, the administrative stuff, right. um, no, you know, redoing my website, that kind of stuff is all <laughs> just what it is. Yeah, because you're, yeah, you're the one that's home with them. And mm -hmm. uh, you're, mm -hmm. yeah, the, and with a six-year-old, it's not like you could just let him sit and do his thing. No. You've got to kind of be there, make sure that the Zoom or whatever, whatever right. way you're connecting is working. Um, now, how do you, with when you see clients, do you normally see adults, children, everything in between? So my general, the, the window I shoot for is, you know, 14 to about 40, 45, um, typically male. Uh, I've, I've really kind of found my niche as working, working with men and young boy, teenage boys who are struggling with masculinity issues and trying to figure out how to be themselves within kind of the really twisted view of what masculinity should be that our society projects. Mm. So that's a lot of your focus. That's so, that's mm -hmm. so interesting. What you're saying is actually so funny because I had a friend whose son uh, knits and uh, mm -hmm. he's 12 and she, he looks at her and like, mom, do you think I'm the only straight kid that knits? You know, like kind of like, you know, yeah. like, as easy as like something mm -hmm. like that, like of, you know, and them kind of choosing. My son would always well, say, you know, they say that it's like a, that that we're sexist against women, but it's like, how come boys can't wear pink or not, you mm -hmm. know, like, you know? <laughs> it's, it's really tough because, you know, it really does go both ways. However, from male to female is so much more, so much, I don't want to say worse, but okay. more physically effective, if you will. Like it stops pe women from getting jobs that they deserve. It stops women from being paid the same amount that they should be paid. They don't get listened to, these kinds of things. So like, I don't want to equate um, the social elements as the same. Like, oh, men have it just as hard as women. Like, no, like mm -hmm. let's acknowledge that being a, a white male, <laughs> middle-aged male is, is kind of a, you know, it's, that's a win, you know, in a terrible way. And so we, we definitely want to acknowledge that there's a, diff, a major difference there that needs to be rectified. But in terms of the emotional expectations, it is, you know, women get these horrible messages all day long, you know, magazines, movies, TV shows, radio, everything about look, be thinner, be beautiful, don't be smart, don't do, you can't do this, do that. But, but, you know, they're told constantly what it, what, how to be. And what yeah. is not often recognized is that men get a lot of those types of messages just as frequently that are equally detrimental. I mean, when was the last time you saw a positive, strong, 
courageous yet emotional and uh, male lead that cried that was not mm-hmm. gay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right? They don't exist on TV. The the male archetype is literally superheroes, literally mm-hmm. inhumans. Thor is a god. He is literally a god. Like that's what we're supposed to be. Men are expected to just take all of this emotional de- trauma and ex- uh, difficulty, swallow it, and move forward. And the only things we can really show are joy and anger. And so a lot of the work I do is helping men find the gray area between starting to develop a lot more emotional vocabulary. A lot of boys are are not taught to say, I'm sad, I'm hurt, I'm lonely. They just are told, stop crying and move on. And so... Boys don't cry. Boys don't cry. Like, what are you doing? Don't cry. Yeah. Yeah. They're just... I'm 40. I'm 40. And I've been working on myself since my mom put my my first stint in therapy was when I was eight. So I've got Mm -hmm. 32 years on and off of working in therapy. I still have to fight myself to allow myself to cry in a movie. Like, Mm -hmm. because I'm just the innate things just stop. Nope, don't cry. Don't cry. Like that kind of stuff is just there. So there's a lot of this going on on a daily basis. And so men who are effeminate or maybe not physically strong, you know, these kinds of things are don't have a, a, a way that the society views as tough, like your friend's son who knits. There's nothing wrong with that. He should be able to knit and feel comfortable with that. He's art. He's being artistic. That's his medium. You know, and we start, we kind of forget that f- for a long time, the top designers, the top upholsters, these people who do sewing and knitting and things have been all men. Mm-hmm. Like, so yeah, it's this weird thing of like, you can't do that as a boy, but if you can make millions of dollars doing it, by all means, do what you want. <laughs> How does yeah, that same work? Goes, yeah, same goes with like bar. I mean, barbers even before barbers yeah. were, and they were straight. They used to be straight men, right? And mm-hmm. now it's that where they still are a lot, but it's still that notion, right? Yeah, um, it's persona, yeah, it's stereotypes that create. Yeah. Now, in in that, like how how knowing that that aspect mm-hmm. of it, how has it shifted? And we're kind of, we're, as I, I told Dave, I'm like, we're just going to be chatting. We will <laughs> see when we get to the actual reason of why we got, but all these <laughs> things are so important because they all actually fit in into the aspect yeah, of even grieving too. Right. Mm-hmm. So how, how do you parent then different, these two young boys you're raising being aware now of these aspects of stereotypes um, knowing that for you, it cha- you know, it took you mm-hmm. so it still, as you said, is something you still have to work through to be able to allow all these emotions. How is it different yeah. for you as a parent? So I think the thing for me that I got from my mom, cause my mom had a really difficult childhood and well, both of my parents did. Uh, I think my mom's was, had a lot of trauma in it though. Um, mm-hmm. and so she started doing her own therapy work around the time that I was, eight or nine when she started with me, putting me in therapy around the same time she went in. Um, Really, she kind of got us all in therapy at the same time. Um, But uh, watching that transition from her starting to try and help me learn the emotional vocabulary and then, Mm -hmm. you know, going through grad school and learning a lot about psychology and therapy and, you know, emotions and things. And so, you know, the thing for me that I'm really focusing on is trying to help my uh, six-year-old develop that emotional vocabulary. So instead of just let, when he throws a tantrum or gets really angry, you know, helping him understand that anger comes after another emotion. No one is just angry. Yeah. That, that doesn't that's work that the tip of the, Yeah, that's just the what you could see it's, over the yeah. iceberg. It's the tip of the iceberg, the bottom, right? What is below is sadness, yeah. hurt, 
frustration, other emotions. Mm -hmm. And so trying to, you know, with kids, young kids, I don't really work with too young, but with young kids, it's about providing that language to them and asking questions like, okay, do you know why you're so angry? And if they don't, or they can't verbalize it, then starting to provide that and saying like, oh, are you sad? Are you hurt that I took your toy away? Are you sad that you don't get to play with that Lego right now? You know, are you, are you upset that, you know, just providing a lot of these, are you embarrassed that your friend called you a name? Like Mm -hmm. trying to give those words so they can go, oh, and there's times when he says, oh, what does that mean? All right. Well, being embarrassed is when you feel like guilty or shame or like he says something, you know, you feel really bad about this toy that you really loved, but your friend made fun of it. And now you're like, ugh. Like, and that's embarrassing. Oh yeah, that. Okay, great. Now you (laughs) have a word. That's awesome. You know, because so often this language is not taught. I mean, I worked in residential treatment facilities for teenagers um, with mental health, but mainly with substance problems like, you know, meth, you know, heroin, alcohol, Mm -hmm. these kinds of things. Kids would come and stay with us for six weeks, six to eight weeks. And so many of them had no concept of emotional vocabulary. Like, they're just like, I'm angry. I know you're angry, but what else is going on? And we literally had to provide them with a list of words. Like, here's a sheet in your paperwork. Here's a list of emotion words that you can choose from. And they would go through and be like, well, what does that one mean? What does that one mean? And you have to describe it to a 16-year-old. That's terrible. We shouldn't have to do this. And it's not Mm -hmm. just kids in rehab. This is like, I run into this in my private practice now where like kids are like, "I, I don't know what I'm feeling. All right, well, can you describe it? (laughs) <laughs> and trying yeah. to describe it and picking out the words that match the best through that. So it's right now, you know, being that he's six and the younger one is one and a half and not really talking yet. We spend a lot of time on emotion, you know, vocabulary, mm-hmm. and then, you know, starting the process of figuring out how to talk through things. So he screams and yells and gets upset and runs in his room. And goes, okay. Give him a few minutes, you know, um, and trying to teach him ways to manage those. So like, if he's too upset, if he's starting to build up to a, a tantrum, I can say to him like, hey, you're start. it seems like, you know, I'm starting to get upset. You're starting to get upset. Should should we take a little break? Do you want to go in your room for five minutes to try and cool down? Go give him some space in his room. Go in and talk to him in a few minutes and see if that helps. It doesn't always help. And we're not always perfect at it. <laughs> Just because I can right, teach other right. people to do it doesn't mean it's easy. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> um, absolutely. Yeah, I, I feel it's even harder. It's even harder, right, when it's your own mm-hmm. children. I used to be, feel that way when I worked with kids before and before I had kids. And I was mm-hmm. so good at it, too. I could tell oh, them what man. to do, like, and, like, in a way that was just nice. I wouldn't say the word don't. I wouldn't say the word no. <laughs> it was just like, it was like, oh, keep the balls in the ball pit instead of saying don't throw them out. You know, like, it's like uh, up the stairs, down the slide, you know, while they were going up the slide, you know, instead, uh-huh. like, things like that. Then, of course, I have my kids. It's like no, 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 no! Don't, 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 don't! What are you, you know, doing? Can... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's What's that emotional. Yeah, it's uh, that emotional attachment, of course, to the outcome yeah, of our own kids that makes it so harder, so much harder. Yeah. Now, with emotional vocabulary and then emotional intelligence, are those then linked? Are those um, are those like vocabularies? Like kind of just having the words and emotional intelligence is just knowing how to navigate our emotions through it, or what the I mean, difference between those two? Concepts. I think you know, emotional vocabulary is having the words to identify how you're feeling. Mm-hmm. Okay. Emotional uh, intelligence, I think, is a bit broader. It is knowing what you're feeling, knowing how to respond to your feelings. Um, so like the idea that if I know that I'm starting to get depressed 
and mm-hmm. I feel myself going down over the last week of like, although gray, and I hate gray, rainy weather, and I, that's why I live in sunny Southern California, but it's been gray and, and drizzly. And you did, week. They, you did grow like, up there, in, though. You grew yeah. up in, didn't you grow up in no, Oregon? I grew did up in grow New up York. In, oh, New York. I don't yeah. know why I thought, you know, I thought Oregon because of another friend we have in common mm-hmm. that, that knows your mom, and I thought yeah. for some reason that it had been from Oregon. No, no, that's just from moving back to LA. So I was born in California, but moved to New York at a young age and lived in New York for 20 years. And that's why I live here now. Okay. So now you (laughs) move to the sun, you're staying in the sun. Yeah. That's like, so, okay. So then emotional intelligence is knowing. uh It's knowing that I'm going down and saying, Mm -hmm. hmm, I'm starting to feel my energy go down. I'm starting to feel more depressed. I'm having less patience with my kids. Um, I, there, I, you know, it's about recognize, being able to recognize that and then take the steps necessary to mitigate the, the depression. Like, okay, I know that I need to start to eat more healthy. Like I got to cut out the sugar because that's a big thing that takes me down further. I can't stay up so late at night. I have to make sure I'm getting exercise. You know, these kinds of things. It's, it's having the plan and knowing yourself well enough. And then eventually you start to be able to recognize that with other people. And, and utilize that intelligence to in your interactions with others of like I had a boss that he had a cycle man the first day of the month first week of the month he was the sweetest nicest most wonderful boss ever the second week he was tired the third week he was angry and the fourth week he was hunting for a fight wow and so you start like you it, having this emotional intelligence allowed me to recognize very quickly don't ever ask him for a day off in a, a last minute in the last week. Don't ask him for anything. He'll Just fire you. You're like, yeah, yeah. he'll fire you that if you ask him on that week. Yeah. And it was, <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, like this is television where screaming and yelling and cursing at each other is very commonplace. And so the fourth week of the month, every time there was three, or four, he was in three or four screaming matches with different coworkers and employees. And I'm looking at these people going, are you dumb or do you like the fight like what is the miss here and to me looking back on it now I look and I go they didn't have the emotional intelligence to recognize his cycle and say this dude is like he has no effective outlet for his anger so he just bottles it up and then the fourth week he can't take keep it in anymore and so it blows off he blows his top he screams at whoever's in front of him and then he's got it done and so that next week he's wonderful that's when you go and ask for a raise that's when you ask for a week off you, or a day off in two days. That's what you like. You kind of pull, <laughs> figure, start to figure this stuff out. Like it's a little silly, but at the same time, is so really, helpful. That's so helpful. This dude, yeah. This dude never yelled at me. I worked for him for six years. He never yelled at me. Well, Everybody else in the office got yelled at. Because you didn't talk to him uh, that week four, yeah. three, and four. Or if I did, if I did talk to him, I was like, "Hey, George, how can I help you? What do you need? I got you." And he's like, uh, do this. I'm like, got you, man. I'll take that for you. Thank you. No problem. Like, I got a few minutes. You need something, you know, like just trying to be helpful. Because I was like, this dude's going to blow his top at anybody and everybody. And I'm Mm. just trying to be helpful. So it was just an interesting thing. But it's this emotional intelligence. Like, that's a very work-related thing. But I mean, think about a a spouse. Like, you know, if you don't know how to read your husband's emotional state, it's going to lead to so many more fights. Mm Mm-hmm. And arguments and discussions and issues, or, or or it will allow problems to continue. Like you, ha- we have just to learn if we want the re- these relationships to 
progress, whether it's friendships, you know, uh, romantic relationships, familial relationships, like we have to be able to read these signs and cues and figure out to some degree where somebody else is. Now, I can't, I don't think we should be mind readers, but having an idea of like, oh, something's wrong and I should go into the bedroom and ask her how she's doing instead of turning on the video, the PlayStation and spending the next four hours out here. That would be a bad idea. Let me go talk to her because yes, I want to play the game, but talking to her and solving the problem will probably make the next week and a half much easier for both yeah. of us. You know, it yeah. solves her, can help solve her problems, all that kind of stuff. So this and is where prevent, the intelligence yeah. comes in. And it prevents also, and not only solve the person's problems, but at the end of the day, make it just more pleasant yeah. for everybody else. Now, the um, that aspect of also being aware, is it's not only the emotional, emotional intelligence, but is being aware of just of our surroundings. That's something mm-hmm. I tell my kids all the time. I'm like, if you walk mm-hmm. into the kitchen and I'm cooking, don't just say, what's for dinner? I'm like, it, <laughs> it is one of my, it is one of those triggers, right, for me. Yeah. And so I'm like, you walk in and you say, how can I help? Like, that's as yeah. easy as it, because that makes you know that you're aware of what's going around you instead of just like, what's for mm-hmm. dinner? So, um, you know, like if you walk in and you like, you could start washing the dishes right away or doing like, there's certain things you have to start just doing on your own, like being one step ahead before you're asked to do something. And it's by being yeah. aware of your surroundings. And, and by doing that, it's also just being aware of people's emotion, aware of people's emotions and stuff. That's so mm-hmm. helpful. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I, I like that, that explanation and the, the difference between the two. I had never thought of it, uh, implying, the emotional intelligence of knowing how to relate to others too. Like, I don't know why I just thought it had to do with just expressing our emotions. So that's very helpful. Thank you. Yeah. All right. So now let's dive then. We spoke a little about your mom. Mm -hmm. Um, And so let's talk then about your mom and what happened and her and and so forth. So we're going to go back now. I'm just going to preface this by saying that I'm terrible with times and dates. So I abs- I honestly have no idea how long it was. Like I, I know she passed in January of 2009. Um, and I think she was diagnosed with breast cancer maybe a year before that, a year and a half. I'm, I'm really not sure. Um, You're not the only person. Every I, There's so many people that when I ask, there's some that it's like they know to the T and that date, but then there's others that it's like, I don't really know. Like it becomes this blur. So you're not the first well, person that I'm at. Yeah. I wish it was just in this area, but it's not. It's in everything. Like if it's not <laughs> in the last six weeks, it could be sometime in the last 10 years. I don't know. <laughs> so unless there's big markers, like right now, I'm like, okay, cool. I got pre-COVID. I got post-COVID. All right. So I know when it was this year. All right. Yeah. Did I have, did I have a child at the time that happened? No. Okay. So then it was before. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Was I married? Was I not? You weren't married because you've been married for 10, right? Yeah. Well, so, so we had met, um, I met my wife about a week and a half before my mom passed maybe two weeks before. So we met right before she passed. Um, so it was, but she, yeah, she was diagnosed and she, I mean, you know, it was kind of like, it was weird. Like I wasn't super freaked out about it when she was diagnosed because a couple of things. One, she was always kind of, I don't want to say frail, but frail mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and not physically 
strong. Her immune system was not very strong. She got sick pretty regularly. Um, like she would slip and fall and she would break her, like she broke her, her arm, um, like things like that. Like it was, and it wasn't like a big fall. So, so it was like her body was just not physically very strong. Um, in that sense, uh, her personality was incredibly strong, but the, the body was not. So, I mean, I'd been used to her having a weird diet from the time I, as long as I can remember, she was making two dinners, one for my brother and I, and one for her, um, you know, just like, because she was eating like boiled chicken and brown rice. And that mm -hmm. was about it. Like for, for as long as, you know, that kind of dietary restriction thing for a long time. So it, it was like, okay. But it was also like breast cancer. I'm like, oh, this is not terrible. Like, you know, if there's one you got to get, that's the one that's kind of treatable. So let's, okay, cool. Um, and she seemed to get better after, you know, a bunch of the radiation treatments and stuff really helped. But she was also diagnosed at stage four. Um, okay. It was already in the bones. And they found it because she couldn't walk real well and because it was in her hips and was stopping her uh, hip joint from moving properly. Um, so she was never able to take uh chemo she did one round one dose of chemo and it took her out for six weeks and she was like i'm not that's not happening um so they just kind of did radiation for a while um and then um it was kind of in the middle it wasn't really like the first couple of months after the radiation started when the tumors were reduced in her hips and she could walk again it was really great but after a couple of months, it kind of went back down to this middle area. Um, and she wasn't very mobile for most of the last year. Um, and then my dad, my brother and I traveled to Florida. We did a conference. My dad was performing and asked if, well, I guess they asked him and my brother if they would perform and he had wanted to do a, a performance about men. So he asked if the, my dad asked if the, he, my brother and I could do this performance um at the conference which we did it was great um and that was where I met my wife then I came back it was because my dad had to go travel somewhere so he couldn't be home with my mom so I went and stayed with her for like five or six days and there was a series of people that were coming and staying with her to you know friends that would fly out and help or that would that were local that would come and stay with her for a couple of days because she couldn't get around real well um but that last week that I was there was very she was detaching, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so she was sleeping all night and then kind of dozing all day on the couch. Um, and we didn't really, it really was a very weird situation because I didn't feel like I was visiting my mom. Mm -hmm. she, we weren't talking very much. Like we were watching, the TV was on and I was texting with this new girl I'd just met, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you know, kind of thing. So it was a very strange thing. And then, um, I went home, somebody else came to stay with her. Um, and I went home and the next day she was rushed to the hospital cause she couldn't breathe. Um, and she was in intensive care for about four or five days. And then they moved her to palliative care for, I don't know, 36 to 48 hours. And then she passed. Um, so were you there? Were you there when she passed? Yeah. Yeah. Cause they only, I only lived about an hour and a half from them. Um, so I drove up, um, my dad was flying in from somewhere else. And my brother was doing a, a, a gig in Czechoslovakia, so he had to pull some emergency international travel um, mm -hmm. to get back. Wow. 
but we were all able to be there. There was a bunch of, um, we got a couple of friends there and uh, had some people drive up from LA to visit and stuff. So it was nice. Um, everybody kind of got an opportunity to say goodbye um, and kind of chat with her and talk with her a bit, which was really cool. Um, and then, you know, she passed in the middle of the night, one night. Was was there, uh, was your mom into music as, as I, I, are you into music as well? Like your, I mean, yeah. Like, are you musicians? I, I, yeah, not as professionally as my dad and brother yeah. are, but, um, but you are. I, yeah, I play, I play music, um, and I sing you know, more for myself and the kids than anything else. Um, so was there, was there singing like at her side? Like, was that something that uh, helped you got or not, or prayers? Like what not really. you guys when she was sick or what would help her during so, that time when she was um, sick? Just company sitting, yeah. what were the ways in which you connected with her during that time? She was a talker. So my dad is music. My dad and brother, the music is their language for everything. Like mm -hmm. if they want to, if they have a big issue, they need to work through, they write songs about it. Um, and my mom helped my dad write a number of his songs early on. Oh, that's um, awesome. Yeah, they, she co-wrote all of his music for the first four, three or four albums, I think. Oh, um, I, would, I, I grew up with, I grew up listening yeah. and marching <laughs> along my house, you know, and <laughs> yeah. your dad's song. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so they they co-wrote a bunch of music together, but it, her, I think she was always more on the lyric side and he did the music to it. And she would edit, you know, give her opinions, but um, she didn't listen to a lot of music. Like when she was in the car driving, uh, unless I turned the radio on, it was silence and we would talk, mm -hmm. but there was no noise. Um, she wouldn't, you know, she listened to some talk radio, but a lot of it was more talking and, and trying to just sort things out. So there were a lot of, by the time she died, there were a number of young women from LA that she was kind of mentoring. And so they were mm -hmm. kind of coming up to see her and she was giving some last, uh, information, some last guidance, that kind of stuff. Um, uh, so there was a lot of that going on, um, and, she but a, a lot of fun. Was she, so was she kind of like you in terms of that aspect? I mean, you are an LMFT. Was she into counseling, or is she was she more a life coach, uh, intuitive? Co what was her? So she thing? described herself as a shaman. Oh, I don't really, I don't really okay. know what that means. Um, in all okay. honesty, um, mm -hmm. I I did not. I was not always, I was not really open to whatever she was doing, um, mm. in a weird way. Uh, but the, the young women in, in LA that worked with her, like, were regularly coming back from visiting her, having their minds blown. Um, she did get, go to get a master's degree in, as a shaman. Um, apparently that's, a, it was available somewhere. Um, mm -hmm. and I, I'm not entirely, I don't know if she ever finished or not. I think she did. I don't know. She got close. I don't think she did. I think she got close and then something stopped it. Um, but she was much more intuitive and kind of emotional, spiritual healing, but not, um, not in the therapy sense or, or in, in, in a clinical psychology kind of mindset, much not more in the of books, a, not in the books kind of sense, but just, right. the, yeah. So, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so, so, um, yeah, so, so yeah, soul healing, which is interesting, right? Being that she was herself so frail and um, and going through her own mm -hmm. things, yet she was still able to still keep giving to others. Um, yeah, well, I think this. I think to me that was one of the big lessons that I took from her and her kind of whole passing was this idea of that it doesn't matter how hard things are. Like I I really do believe that the hardest parts of her life were when she was a child. And so 
as terrible as that was, I, I, uh, I don't know the, de- the full details of that. I'm not sure I want to, but the idea of like just understanding I've worked with plenty of kids who've been in those types of situations and as difficult and as awful as those experiences are, the, the silver lining to that is that nothing scares you. Mm. Right. Once you've been through the worst, like mm-hmm. if you really put your mind to it and you decide to grow and, and change and go through all whatever transformation needs to happen, nothing's going to scare you after that. Like you've mm-hmm. been through the hardest thing you'll ever do. So building a business, that's easy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like this kind of thing is so, so in that sense, it's, um, it becomes there there's a strength that comes from going through these really difficult challenges. Um, and I don't believe personally, I don't believe anyone is really challenged beyond their capacity. So to me, that says that anyone who's going through a difficult situation or, or uh, something, not that they deserve it necessarily, but that they are capable of working through it in some way. Uh, and that allows for a really positive outlook on whatever someone's dealing with. Mm. Now, how was that then for you? Was her death the first major grief experience in terms of death no. that you had lived? No. What other no. death so, experiences have you experienced? I had a couple of friends pass away in high school. Mm. Um, and then my best friend from high school passed away when I was 20 in college. Um, and so the, you know, the friends were close, but not like super close. So it was upsetting and like, Oh my God, but not like Your real terrible. Friend. Yeah. It, they, like there were people I knew. Yeah. yeah. There were people I knew I'd hung out with them. I'd spent time with them and it was, and I knew people who were really close with them that were sad and it was like, all right, cool. This is sad. Whatever. We, yeah, I can deal with this. Um, and then my best friend passed away. He overdosed, uh, at 19 and that one was really hard. But my mom kind of, I don't want to say she pushed me through it, but her, her philosophy, and I agree with it 100% and have used it for my life and, and have recommended to all my patients and clients and stuff, is the idea that she wouldn't let me stop my life. So I reached out to some teachers. I think I took, I went home from college the, the day after I found out um, and was home for a day or two, went back up to school for a couple of days, went back to class and then went home again for the funeral and then went back to class. Like she would not let me come home and stay home for a week or two weeks or or whatever. Um, She was not going to allow that. And and I'm kind of grateful for that because I'm definitely the person that getting started is the hardest part. Once I'm going, I can power through pretty much anything. So like, I had been doing school. I was in school and and was really rolling with that. And to have that stopped, I have a a friend of mine in high school, from high school, her father passed away when she was in college and she went home and was like, I'm going to take a semester off and never went back. That kind of thing. And so I think my mom was really scared of that and pushed me through it. And so that has been my kind of mantra is that when these awful things happen you can't stop like yes you need to stop and grieve you need to have your moments I mean I think I took a week off of work um because we organized from well maybe it was a week and a half I'm not sure but she like she passed and you know we're in the Baha'i faith and in the Baha'i faith you're supposed to when someone passes they need to be buried um you know as quickly as possible there's no embalming there's no wake you you got to get it done and taken care of as quickly as you can and so 
from the time she passed to the time she was buried was like 36 hours. Mm-hmm. And then we did a memorial, I think, uh, a week later. Um, or no. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, it must have been a week later because we had people fly out. Um, so we did. So there was a memorial about a week later. But outside of that, like after my mom was buried, I went back to work. Mm-hmm. Like I was like, I'm not going to sit and I'm going to be depressed. I'm going to be sad. I'm going to cry a lot, but I'm not going to let my life stop um, because it doesn't. Whether <laughs> you want it to or yeah. not, I also yeah right. The earth, the earth still spin, right? Yeah. We're still spinning. Yeah. So and I was in my, I was in grad school. She passed away uh, three days before the spring semester started for grad school. So, like, I I contacted some friends and was like, hey, can you you know you're in this class with me? Can you tell the teacher what happened? I'll be there when you know in the next couple of days. And everyone was really understanding. All the teachers like take as much time as you need, but I couldn't let myself do that. And really, it actually was uh, the the lifetiming. You know, is perfect. And I, I don't necessarily, I don't believe in coincidences like this. I think the universe set it up mm-hmm. in that way, or God set it up in that way. That one of the classes that I was taking was my group therapy class, mm-hmm. and the way that class was structured was the first hour and a half of the class was lecture, and the se- then we'd take a five or ten minute break, and the second half of that class was a group, like we would do a process group. So you'd actually get to share your emotions yeah. and that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and so the very first day that I was back was the first day she was doing the group process. And so she, we kind of sat there for about five minutes, everybody staring at each other because no one wanted to go first. And then the teacher turned to me and was like, do you want to share? And I was like, I mean, yes, I can share, but it's going to go, we're going down a hole right now. Like, this is not a, oh, I'm sad that this happened. Like, this is, you know, and it ended up being really great because one, I got group therapy every week <laughs> for a semester, but two, like starting off with that allowed like the next week, a woman in the class talked about how she was scared that her husband was cheating on her. And the next week it was like, it just kept it. It opened it, up. It opened it, up the door for others. Yeah. To their, theirs, Everybody yeah. was like, okay, okay, we can go deep. Sure. Yeah. And they, you know, because I was like, all right, I'm going to do this. And I'm, I'm a, I'm an open book. Like, there's never a person who you have to be really unemotionally intelligent to not know that I'm upset about something. Like I'm not capable of hiding it. You wear your emotions <laughs> on your sleeve, as they say. Oh. Now, were you able to express, like, were you, you were talking about crying and things like that before. Like, you're like, I don't cry at, you know, I'm learning how to cry yeah. even in movies. How were you able to cry uh, as part of your grief? Was that yeah. part of your, yeah. okay. I mean, I think in the group, it was so fresh, it wasn't, I wasn't able to stop it because it like the first group was literally a week or so after she had passed. Like, so it it wasn't like, I couldn't stop it if I wanted to. Um, But most of the crying did happen like at home and toward, you know, in the middle of the night, like typically when I was alone Um, and not really around people. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of now at the time I was living with, um, some friends of mine and the, the wife was a very close, I uh, was one of the women who had been going to see my mom. And so mm-hmm. there was some sharing of the grief there, but it's still different, you know, losing a mentor versus losing, losing a parent is a, a bit of a difference in, in uh, intensity, I think. Um, but it was nice in the sense that the people that were, 
that you could yeah. talk about her and they knew and they could talk yeah. about their memories and things like that about her. Yeah. And there was a lot of um, understanding. It wasn't, you know, there weren't, I, I had a number of people around me who were open to the conversation and were not like, Oh, okay, dude, whatever. I mean, like you're going back to the, the, the male, you know, masculinity thing. Like, Mm-hmm. there's nothing more terrifying for men than another man like crying, crying, not tearing up and being like, I'm just like, man, it's hard. But like really crying, Dude, men have no idea how to handle that. We don't, you know, <laughs> You're not, yeah, we it's don't like, have it's... to, <laughs> we don't ever have to, like that never is a thing. And right. so, so true. The, the only time you have to deal with someone really blubbering at you is when your wife is upset. And even then guys are like, Oh, she's crying. Yeah. What do I do? Uh, let me get a tissue and chocolate. Does that help? I don't know. Like it's this, I mean, I'm being a bit stereotypical myself right now, but this, I, I feel like this is what we're being set up for. So true. And it's, and it's important to be able to support our friends, male and female, when we're really upset and crying and having these, these awful moments. Um, and it's interesting because like, I just kind of realized this myself, but I'm a therapist. Like my job is to let people come and cry to me. But when I have a friend who's dealing with trauma or dealing with a, a big loss, I'm the guy who comes in and makes them laugh. Mm. So humor is your, humor it's for is me, your go-to. Mm-hmm. For me, it's, it's, yeah. And, you know, the, the closer the loss is to me, the more inappropriate the humor gets. It's yep, <laughs> like, yep. really crossed a lot I'm of lines right now. That's something so important. It's so important that you're sharing that because it's so true. Yeah. It, yeah. I, we all kind of deal with grief differently. I'm humor as well. So I, I and, get it. But it's like, it's one of those things. It's, interest, it's just interesting because I'm like, all right. So like my job is to tolerate people crying and being upset. And yet when it's a friend or a family member, I really want to make them laugh. And I have to really, really try hard not to do that with my children. Mm. Like that, that has been a real challenge for me is when he's really upset and crying about something, whether a toy broke or, you know, um, he got in a fight with a friend or, you know, somebody he got in trouble about something and he's really crying hard. Like I have to, like, you know, I'm constantly stopping myself from saying, don't, don't cry. This is not th- nothing to cry about. What are you, you're upset your Lego, dude, we'll put the Lego back together. It fell on the floor and broke. Like, come on. And I like, I have to catch myself in those moments and be like, no, cry, be upset. It is okay to be upset. You are allowed to be sad that you put a lot of effort into this and it fell and broke. Mm-hmm. And now you're sad. Yes, we can fix it, but that's not the issue right now. You're sad about the effort. <laughs> yes. Yes. You know, and so trying to recognize that and, and curtail that because like, you know, as adults, one of my friends lost her daughter a couple of months ago and it was a grown adult daughter, but still, you know, she was like 25 or 26. And I called and I wasn't sure if she was going to answer the phone. And I was, I was like, hey, whether she does great, if she doesn't, I'll leave a voicemail. It's fine. She answered. And she said, you're one of the few people I answer because I know you're going to make me laugh. I was like, cool. I know what we're doing. Let's do it. You know, and we had a great conversation. We talked for like 30 minutes and she laughed a lot. And I was like, all right, great. I got a lot of things to, you know, sit, you know, complain about in a really silly over the top way. So let's go. <laughs> like, that's what she needed. She, at that moment, she that's what she needed. Yeah. Right. 
And that's it. I think that that's the key is knowing what does the person need if in that moment for mm -hmm. their grief, like, and again, going back to the emotional intelligence, as you were mm -hmm. saying, and actually asking like, you know, what would you, what would make you feel better right now? A little in a little bit, or what would you like for me yeah. to do? Would you like, cause sometimes it's just being there. That's enough. Sometimes yeah. it's making laughs. Sometimes it's just not talking at all, you know, whatever it is. Right. Um, sometimes it's doing things for them, you know, that, mm -hmm. you know, or things, you know, it's just the different ways that we can be. But um, the aspect where you were talking about the, uh, the trying to feeling uncomfortable with tears and the not knowing mm -hmm. what to do. I remember even just, uh, you know, where you were talking even in relationships, my husband, like whenever I'd have like, you know, really like tough moments and like, I'd just be crying. And sometimes I wouldn't even know why was I, I was crying. I just, felt like crying. Right. And mm -hmm. so he be trying to like, make it better. What did I do? What can I do? And I'm like, no, listen, I just want to cry. Like, yeah. just let me be right now how I am. I don't want you to try to fix it. I don't mm -hmm. need any fixing. I just need to have this emotional, you know, release at this moment. That's all. So of course, after 17 years of marriage now, we got that, we got that sure. clear already. So, sure. so, so that is important too, of the person that is going through the grief of being open enough to share what it is they need if they just want to well, cry, if they want, you yeah. Know, so, yeah. I think one of the things I've taught the men that I work with that are struggling with emotional intelligence and understanding their spouse or their girlfriend or whatever is, um, or partner really, is this idea of asking, if you can't tell, ask, you know, mm. like, and I've done, I did that with my wife early on where there were times I'm like, cause I'm a, you know, one of the differences between men and women is that men naturally on top of all the stereotypical stuff and the, the, the emotional, the cultural information that's being pushed into us, we are more Mr. Fix it mentality. Here's a yeah. problem, fix it, move on. Here's a problem, fix it, move on. And that's not always what people want. So if you're not, so I always have said to them, like, if you're not sure what the person, what your wife wants or what your partner wants, ask, you can always say like, Hey, I can see that you're upset or you're frustrated. Do you want me to try and help you fix this? Or would you prefer yeah. I just sit here and listen? I can do both. Yeah. And then as you go through that and they go, I need you to just listen. Like, you know, and some of it's obvious. When my wife comes home and complains about her work, I can't fix that. That's an obvious, easy solution for me. Cool. I can just listen and I can be supportive and I can help be helpful and I can, you know, challenge her in ways that will help her identify how she needs to fix it, whatever that means for her. Um, but like, because there are times when she's just, I just need you to take this over and do it. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I can do that. You know, that even, I, that's even helped me even in my communication with friends. Sometimes when they're mm -hmm. sharing something with me, I say, okay, I, do, do you want me to listen or do you want, do you want to just kind of vent or do you need right. any feedback? Do you want my opinion? Or, you know, I, and actually I've had to learn to ask, do you want my opinion? Cause I am one of those that just start saying in general, <laughs> yeah. my opinion. Yeah. So I've had to kind of learn that, that not necessarily is everybody wanting my opinion or wanting me to fix it. They just really just sometimes want to vent. So I've had to mm -hmm. learn to ask that question, even in, yeah, in conversations with friends. Um, so that's, that's really helpful. The flip side of that though, is to learn who to talk to because oh. I know for me, there are certain people that if I am not in the mood for feedback, I cannot call them to talk about the issue because they're going to give it to me. Mm -hmm. 
and it's valuable and and like it's good. It's it's not a knock on them in any way. They're just gonna call me out in ways that I need to be called out. But if I'm not ready for that, I'm not calling them. <laughs> I'm not calling that dude. Yeah, yeah. When I'm ready for it, then I'm like, all right, here we go. I know I, I don't need know what the lecture. I need the lecture. I'm ready for it. Here we go. You know, and then I'm we call him and talk, and he's like, well. Are you ready now? And like he, we trying to joke about. It. He's like, "You ready now? Okay, cool. Let's do this." <laughs> you know, but it's so it's it's both sides, right? I need to know what they're looking for, but I also need to know what I'm looking for because okay. we nobody has you know we don't have three or four people that are everything to us, or at least we shouldn't, in my opinion. It takes a village to raise a kid. It takes a village to be a living, functioning, reasonable adult. Um, and so knowing I have friends that I talk about video games with, I have friends that I talk about martial arts with, I have friends that I talk about, you know, family stuff with, I have friends that I talk about the big issues of the world with and like knowing what do I need? What is going to feed me right now? Do I need, I just need a break. I've been too stressed. I need to talk about stupid video games and make stupid, (laughs) make stupid jokes. I'm calling JP. If I need to, if I'm like, no, I'm struggling with big world issues and we need to figure this, like, I need to figure some stuff out. I'm going to call my dude who's going to give me the feedback. Like, you know, like, yeah. and knowing this stuff, I like, um, I've, just, I've been using this analogy a lot lately, but I really like it. Um, is that, you know, there's research lately that has been coming out that is showing that boys specifically, uh, I don't know about girls, um, but the, the research is focusing on boys as young as 14 are starting to sever their friendships with other boys Hmm. and you can see a distinct change in how they talk about their best friends, how they talk about wanting to see their best friends, how they talk about wanting to spend time with them from 11 and 12 and 14 and on. And basically what happens is men, as they go from teenagehood into manhood, uh, start pairing away their friends and they cut down until they're just, it's just a spouse is like the only friend, maybe two or three male friends, but they're like, that's about it. And it's not enough of a social structure. Um, and so the analogy I really love is, is, uh, Lord of the Rings. Um, you know, the first book is the fellowship of the ring. And at the end of the first book, they basically decide this one character is not going to make it to go throw the ring in the fire and destroy the thing. And yeah, yeah, like he can't do it alone. So he gets nine dudes to go with him Mm -hmm. and they're all good at something. This dude's a good fighter. This dude's really smart. This, you know, like, you know, and they struggle. They don't all, they're not all successful, right? So one, at least one of them dies and they kind of, they all, they kind of splinter and then they come back together and then they splinter again and they're all doing different things, but they support each other throughout that whole process, mm. right? And that is a much better metaphor for me of what needs to happen and how people need to be supporting themselves. Not just mm. men, like people need this. I, the only reason I'm focusing on men with it is because I think culturally women are allowed to be supportive and, and be supported by their peers mm-hmm. far more than men are. So um, true, yeah. So, so this kind of building this up in this group together that's like, all right, I need help. Who can I call? And all right. Well, this is what we got to do. My, you know, I have a, a buddy in New York whose basement just flooded out and he like, he's calling in the troops and luckily for him, people are showing up and he's like, all right, this dude's bringing me a couple of pumps. 
this guy's good at, you know, uh, you know, waterproofing. So he's going to go and waterproof the basement and help, you know, help him figure out what he needs to buy. And then really seeing, yeah, this guy does that. Da, da, da. And, you know, so these pe this village is coming together to support him because it happened, I think, like Christmas Eve. His basement, oh, they wow. came downstairs to get presents and the uh, basement had two feet of water. Man. So what do you do? You call, you just put out the feelers and be like, hey, can, can anybody help me? And see who shows up. It's not going to be everybody, but developing that community to allow for that is so crucial. You, you know, something else too is the aspect of being able to know what, how to ask for help and when to ask, because that's the thing mm -hmm. a lot of times too, going back again to the archetype, as you were saying before, the, right. uh, am I saying that correct? Right. It's like, you mm -hmm. know, I know how to, I'm, I don't need a map. I'm going to go just, I know how to get there. I don't need help. Mm -hmm. da, 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 right. And that goes also in any, you know, in several personalities, you know, that sure. I, I even remember my mom even telling me that I don't even ask, like, she never would help me. I had this conversation before she passed away. <laughs> like, she would never, like, help me, like, just, you know, but she's like, you never asked me, Kendra. You've always been so independent. Like, you never right. asked. Yeah. So I was like, oh, my gosh. Like, I never asked. Like, I always just thought that being the oldest of four, I would just always be the one that would just do and do it on my own because there were other ones that needed the help mm -hmm. in my, you know? So, mm -hmm. um, so that's important there too. Yeah. Because if not yeah. like this, this friend of yours, if he, he was just swallowing his pride, you know, like if he was like prideful about yeah. asking for help, he'd have his basement flooded and not, you know, not reaching well, out for the troops. And he'd end up paying, an, you know, five or $6,000 out to some emergency mm -hmm. plumber to call them out on Christmas to come pump his basement. And he's still stuck trying to, then he's got to figure out how to do all this stuff to fix it and make sure it doesn't happen again. But instead, mm -hmm. like, but he was able to reach out and be like, hey, I mean, he kind of did it in like, you know, in a quote unquote manly way. He posted on Facebook and let people offer. That's awesome. So, but, but still, that's so great. That's it's so great. Still, yeah. It's still a way of asking for it, right? Like it's yes. still a way of saying, I need help here. Um, obviously it would be better if you were able to directly go, you know what? Um, I know John's got a, a, a pump. I know B uh, Bill's got a pump. I'm going to give them a call. I'm, I'm, I know uh, Billy, the, he waterproofs houses, so he knows what to do. Maybe I, maybe he'll go like bring some materials over. We can start making sure this doesn't happen again. You know, like he wasn't able to be that direct about it, but he still was able to put it out there into the universe and be like, oh, I need help. Right. No, that's uh, so good. Now let let let's go back just be before because we've we've jumped everywhere and it's amazing mm -hmm. because it's all interconnected again. Then we the asking for help and the grief component again back mm -hmm. to your mom. You went back then to school, and then you were that was one of your tools. Then was your own class, your own group classes, yeah. or you were yeah. going to school helped you in your in your grief journey. What mm -hmm. other tools did you use, Dave? So um, what I did was very quickly, I found a, so um, shortly after my mom passed, I moved into my own apartment out of the house. I was kind of staying in a back house kind of area. And I moved into this apartment that was um, in, the, in between where I worked and where I went to school. It was like five minutes north was work, five minutes south was school. And once I got in there, it was kind of alone. I realized that I was going down and I needed to kind of stop myself from going too deep. And um, so I ended up finding a therapist that was, you know, in the office complex that the office building I was in. Um, so 
I ended up going to started seeing a therapist within a couple of weeks um, of her passing shortly mm-hmm. after, you know, and that was very helpful just in terms of just getting it out, like processing it, being able to, you know, therapy's always been a sacred safe space for me. And I'm like, all right, cool. I, I know this person's not supposed to judge me. And even if they are judging me, they can't let me know. So that's fine. <laughs> um, I don't know about it. I don't care. Um, so it's, it's kind of, that was a, a very beneficial space. Um, how was it with your relationship then too? Cause you had just started then dating. You had yeah. just met Oz. And so then also, how was it then starting a new relationship as you're in the middle? Like how she got to know you was when you were in one of your most vulnerable yeah. moments in life. Well, so how was that dynamic as well? And it was it long was, distance for a while, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was long distance up until we got married. Um, mm-hmm. So we were long distance for about a year and a half. Um, and so, which I think was actually very beneficial. Um, it's, I, I have a trouble with small talk mm-hmm. on a day to day basis. Like when she comes home from work, I'm like, I don't care who you had lunch with. I don't care about the joke. They said, none of that matters to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you want to talk about how you're struggling with your boss or with a coworker is not doing what they're supposed to be doing, or this person's not doing their job and is making your job harder. Like that's real world stuff. Like we can talk about that. If you want to talk about the state of the world, we can talk about that. Like I need deep, meaningful conversations. I can't do foo foo. And then I went and over here and then I did this and then I, did, I, don't, I don't need a schedule. Document. Um, we do that, but that's yeah, what we I, do. That's I what that. we do. I don't. Get I'm like Ross. I'm like I went here, and then at the A B yeah. C D at well, two o'clock, I went. And- <laughs> but that's and the thing is, to me, I'm like that's fluff. That's to stop us from talking about the real issues. <laughs> deeper stuff. Yeah, yeah. So and so that's on it. Like when I'm in front of someone, I can't tolerate it. So on the phone, it's even worse. So it forced us to have very real, meaningful conversations. So we talked about stuff. Um, with my mom, um, her mom has had cancer as well. Um, it was a different experience. And so she was, it was very interesting because she was struggling on some level to get my experience because we never, you know, there were no rushes to the hospital outside of the last time. So like I called Roz as I was driving up to the hospital and one of the first questions she asked was like, Oh, well, is this like the other times? And I'm like, Oh, what other times? Mm. and she was like oh well like with my mom we've we went to the hospital like four or five times with her before you know and her mom's still going strong and so I was like oh uh no we never that's never happened before there's never Mm. been a a a before time this is the only time she's gone to the hospital Um, which to me was a blessing like I'm not a fan of being in and out of hospitals and all of that stuff like nah let's let's get it done and be out of here I don't (laughs) Um, so it so it was a very interesting experience in that sense um and just it just i think made it it deepened the conversations because there was more meaningful conversation about my mom about mm-hmm. death about this kind of stuff which is you know one of the big tenets too that i have always held is uh death is not scary to me I'm not concerned. I'm not afraid of death. I'm not afraid for other people. Um, 
you know, as I mentioned, I'm a Baha'i, so we believe in more that the soul continues after this world, um, that it's a better place, uh, and that there are really like many worlds. It's a constant journey, and you you die from the womb to be born into this world. You have to die in this world to be born into the next. And kind of the 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 quote that sticks in my head from the Baha'i writings is, "Death is hard for the living." Hmm. And so that to me really mitigated a lot of the grief um, because my philosophy was less about my mom's gone. I've lost my mother and more of it's shifted. My relationship with my mother has shifted. It's not the same, but it's not gone. She's still here. You know, she's still around. She's still able to communicate with us in ways. It's not nearly as clear. Sometimes it's very confusing. Well, she was Please a shaman. She might find very clear yeah. ways of doing that. <laughs> well, you know, a couple, uh, I think we were, we were, when Ross and I started getting serious, I don't, again, I have no idea when this was. It was sometime before we were married. Um, uh-huh. She had a dream that she was in this house and she's walking through this house and she walks into this room and there's my mother just sitting on a chair watching her for a while. <laughs> and I was like, oh yeah. So it was, that's a clear message. Okay. Yeah. But like, but so that idea of like, this person is dead and gone mm-hmm. doesn't apply to me. I don't believe that. I think, yes, the, per- the body is dead, but the, the spirit is still around. It's mm-hmm. still, you know, intermingling with this world and how we in, you know interact with stuff. And so it's, it comes and goes and you go, okay. So it, it I think that in turn was something as well, you know, faith and, and kind of a belief in, in a, uh, kind of a life after death system, mm-hmm. if you will, also made it a lot easier to work through some of that grief and process through that to be like, all right, it's just different now. That's really all it is. It's just different. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not about it's gone forever and I'll never see her again. I'll never communicate with her again. Like that's not a thing. So it's, it's even, even like how you're saying, cause I mean, I'm getting chills because I can totally relate to what you're saying. I completely know what I, I can. Mm-hmm. It does the thing with grief. I'm like, I get it. I get it. I totally get that. Cause that's how I feel about it as well with my mom. But it's, it's kind of like even your relationship with Roz having been even long distance, you were on the phone. Mm-hmm. You weren't even in person yet. Right. You were having, right? so it's even to that extent of relationships that you could still build my relationship, my husband too. And I, we dated long distance before we got, we, we only lived in the same place for a month before we got married. So we never say, did that. Yeah. Oh, you didn't even do that. Okay. For us, no. like a month, but it's like, but we only dated eight months. So, mm-hmm. and it was all like this. So the same kind of situation that we had to also dive deep, have these deep conversations. So now in relation, then we've even that comparing it to the relationship that's now different with our, moms with our loved ones that have passed on it's that it's just a different communication system Mm -hmm. right now because it's just they're not just physically here and yes we can't just pick up the phone but there's other ways in which we can connect Um, I want to hear if you can share this part and then we'll wrap it up Uh, how do you talk about her to well Chase I guess because Connor's too too little like how do you keep her memory alive um in your home 
So, yeah, <laughs> it's a, at times it can be a little sticky because my dad has remarried. Um, mm -hmm. And he remarried before uh, Chase was born. So, mm, so he doesn't have a concept of having seen him by himself. Yeah, yeah it. right. Uh -huh. it was, my dad was never alone before, mm -hmm. before Chase was or after Chase was born and he wasn't with my mom. So we, you know, we definitely talk about grandma Kathy all the time. Um, mm -hmm. We do bring her up a lot. We talk about her a lot. Um, and my, you know, my brother is really good about doing that with his kids. And so we talk, you know, whenever we see them or talk to them, it comes up and we talk about that and we kind of keep, keep her alive in that sense. We have pictures and things like that. Um, and, and we haven't quite gotten the question yet about like how how does your you know grandma Kathy Gambu and Jamma all fit together in this puzzle? Mm -hmm. He hasn't quite gotten there yet, um, mm -hmm. but I'm pretty direct and forward person, um, and I was like, and when that comes, we'll talk about it, and we'll say, well, this is what happened, and you know, and it's it's interesting because it's led into conversations about death in general. He's had some experience, like our dog. Um, we put our dog down three years ago. He was three, so he didn't quite get it, but he does get it now. And so we use that kind of correlation for him mm -hmm. when he asks about, like, where is Grandma Kathy? We're like, well, she's in the next world, right? She's with Costas. Remember when he had to go away and he went to the next world because he got sick? And he's like, oh, yeah, okay. Like, so it's kind mm -hmm. of, uh, that kind of helps a little bit. Um, and now you have this other dog now. Like, yeah, yeah. so it's like, yeah, so... And um, it just yeah brings that concept together. Yeah, I, I think it, you're you're right in terms of just an, ask answering as they ask, right? Yeah. Kids. yeah. As they start asking, then you start answering. You we don't necessarily have to put it all there at the on the table at the sure. all at once necessarily. It's just as they start asking more questions about life after death and so forth, mm -hmm. then we we do. But yeah, the 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 grief component. Like my kids did get to experience my mom you know mm -hmm. my dad is also remarried now uh for the last year but even that component of was also something we also had to deal with the grief of even yeah. that aspect a new change oh, yeah. and it didn't take away from the fact that we were so happy you know for my dad but we still had yeah. to deal with our own personal uh mm -hmm. grief you know and um so that that dynamic happens as well now yeah. what are you most grateful for for the experiences that you've had not only of your mom's passing, but then also of your friend when you were in college and then the other ones in terms of the things that have happened that have been hard, what mm. are you most grateful for in your own growth and your own uh, awakening as a person or whatever, what things have come from that? Um, I think that, like my friends and stuff in high school and college, it was really the, the benefit was kind of being prepared for when my mom passed. Mm -hmm. um, and when my mom passed, it was kind of like, it really in a way was the floodgates opening of being like, you got to stop bottling all this stuff up. You got to start to work on letting it out a little more effectively. Um, and, you know, that's kind of a lifelong journey really, but it was a, kind of the opening of the door and you know once a door is opened you can't really close it again so okay. yeah. once you've cried about something in public 
you, it's kind of silly to stop crying about it. <laughs> you know, like, like you're in a classroom with a bunch of people you've, you've kind of met, you know, some of them, but not all of them. And you're like really sobbing because your mom passed away four or five days ago. Like after that, it's like, all right, I can cry about anything in this class and it really doesn't matter anymore. <laughs> you, you know? So it allowed you to just openly express it yeah. yourself. If that was, so that's one of the things that it taught you. Was that also an a, a big part for you then in this uh, aspect of the emo the emotional component, uh, emotional vocabulary that you kind of focus in your practice? Was that because uh, you were um, studying at that moment, or was that something that just always interested you in your um in your therapy kind of work? Well, I think the the emotional intelligence really became interesting to me in when working in the residential facilities. Because I was seeing people, kids and family, because the kids would come stay with us, but we would do family therapy with them twice a week. So we would push these parents to come into the facility. And I would see these grownups that had no emotional intelligence either. Mm. And I was like, how have you gotten to 45 years old <laughs> and you don't know how to say you're lonely or you're hurt? How does that work? Oh gosh, and that's... was first was just surprised by it. But now I'm like, oh no, there's a lot of people that can't do that. And, <laughs> and it's... It's not about them being idiots or stupid. It's that our culture is stupid. Oh, <laughs> it's the culture yeah. that's that's being dumb here. And this machismo thing of just power through, just be strong, just and you mm-hmm. just push through. And I think that's, to my personal opinion, is that's why we see such high rates of substance abuse and addiction right now, or one of the reasons. Because mm-hmm. they don't know how to deal with it. It's a way of numbing yeah. it. Yeah, numbing it because yeah. they don't know how to deal with it. Yeah. The uh, no, that is just so so valuable. So thank you. I just wanted to kind of just know how it was that maybe if that influenced at all your choice in yeah, in your not focus. not so much with my mom. I think it was more that like what it is now is is kind of looking back and realizing that when I was really you know ten, eleven, twelve, and my mom was forcing me to sit on the couch with my brother because we just had a fight about something. And she's like, you know, but what are you feeling? I'm like, I'm angry. She's like, yeah, I know, but what are you feeling? And I'm like, I don't want to talk about it. And like realizing now, like, oh, what she was trying to do was teach me emotional vocabulary and emotional intelligence in the moment. She was trying to help me understand what it was I was going through instead of just letting me rage for 20 minutes and then blow it off and be and then cool down and be like, oh, well, good thing that's over. Like she wasn't going to ignore it. She faced it head on and and kind of powered through a lot of the anger and frustration to get to the soft underbelly below that. Um, and that has become, you know, the, the lesson of, that I've gotten from my mom with that is like, Oh, okay. So when my six year old is throwing a tantrum, I have to just power through that and just mm. wait for that to finish to where he's really upset and crying. We get past the anger to the sadness and then we can start to talk about the sadness. Like, okay. Yeah. We're talking about, you know, how we're talking about the soul even just continuing, just even the aspect of the things that continue even within us, like just how you're explaining now that those lessons that you learned from your mom are now carrying on even through you, right? Mm -hmm. Like all, so she is with you, you know, even in those moments of parenting Mm -hmm. and so forth too, because Mm -hmm. not only what she taught you when she was alive, but just you, you know, you still carry her memory even just that way. So it's just so... So beautiful. So thank you. Any last minute, any last moment, uh, things you'd like to say and, um, to the audience or that I did not ask that you'd like to share. Um, 
I don't know. I don't want you to like after we hang up, they'd be like, in the middle. Man, I no, forgot just, to tell her this story. Oh, no, I forgot I'm just to trying to think. I, I think that sometimes, like, oh, I forgot to ask this. <laughs> I so. mean, no, it's, you know, it's just interesting. I think that, you know, growing, I'm naturally not afraid, not afraid of, you know, death and spooks and ghosts and things like that. So to me, there've been a couple of incidents, not with my mom necessarily, but prior to that, where I had, you know, would see something that I was like, all right, that can't be, or something would happen. We go that there's no other explanation for this. Mm. And, and it is, you know, like I was like 17 and was working at a grocery store. And I saw this guy out of the corner of my eye, an older gentleman just standing there and I was working. And so I turned to talk to him and there's nobody there. And I think my, you know, the, be the way my mom raised me, and, and talking to me, my, the way my dad raised me to talk to me about this stuff, like that stuff was not scary. Mm-hmm. So this, and that you start talking, you, if you take away the fear of ghosts and the supernatural, then you take away a lot of the fear of death. Mm. So that when somebody passes, you go, all right. Okay. I mean, it sucks for me but she gets to do all this amazing stuff now. So that was that kind of stuff that was like, I think that was really helpful is some of those experiences that I had early, you know, younger when I was like 15, 16, 17 of like, Oh, okay. This dude is not there. You know, you look and you know, you get to the point where I'm like, I'm looking out of the car of my eye. I can see this guy clearly standing there. I know there's a person there. Then you turn and look and he's gone. You go, what, what is that supposed to be? I don't know. But to me, it was a very soothing presence because of our, my the the Your family upbringing. view yeah. of it and right. it was i didn't have i just didn't have fear around it so that i t- i think that this idea of like accustoming children to the concept of death to the concept of the soul moving on and things like that makes it really easier i mean one of the less you know pets teach us a lot of things oh, responsibility uh unconditional love like animals love unconditionally humans do not always love unconditionally um, and the final lesson that a pet, any individual pet can teach you is how to handle death. Mm-hmm. You know, like yeah. that's just parents just, miss that boat sometimes too. I've had this conversation yeah. before. So sometimes you know, when you know Chase was only three, then when his dog died, you yeah. did not tell him that the dog went to a farm well, to live. With no, the, he came with us. Dog. He, he went with. Take, you. Okay, he, he, he was went with us to the vet. Yeah. He, he I mean, I, he, didn't, yeah. he didn't really know what was going on. I don't think he really grasped what was happening, but he knew that, you know, mommy and daddy and, and Gamble were all really upset and sad and crying. Mm-hmm. And he knew that we walked in carrying Costas and we walked out without Costas. Mm-hmm. Like he figured that out. Mm-hmm. Um, and now he did, you know, a day or two later ask, when are we going back to get Costas? Oh. So he didn't <laughs> quite get it. <laughs> but we'd also, you know, he'd had that experience where we'd drop him off and come back a few hours later to pick him up. Like he had that before. Mm-hmm. So like there was some of that where he was a little confused, but it was, he was there and I wasn't going to hide it f- from him. Mm-hmm. You know, like this is not something that I, I'm not a believer in lying to kids about mm-hmm. anything. Um, like he's not, you know, he didn't go to some farm somewhere and he's not still living there. Like, no, he's dead. Mm-hmm. We can talk about I- it. 
I, I, I think that the biggest lessons in this conversation I've had with you and the things that have come up the most have been the aspect of really just being open to these conversations, mm -hmm. like just again, naming the emotions with the vo emotional yeah. vocabulary, being open with having conversations about life and death, using those opportunities that we have mm -hmm. in order to teach our kids and also teach ourselves, you know, how to handle those, com you know, yeah. those conversations and so forth, you know, we get to kind of practice and it's not, it's not always going to turn out the way we want, you know, like no. we may not say the right thing as we're trying mm -hmm. to explain to our kids, you know, the concept of life after death or whatever it is that each family believes as they're educating their children about what happens mm -hmm. when somebody dies, you know, you, you follow whatever beliefs, you know, bring you comfort or whatever you've brought, you know, brought up to believe you and I happen to have the same beliefs of life after death. So therefore it is, a I don't know, it does bring some, you know, comfort, <laughs> of course, mm -hmm. having those beliefs sure. for sure. Uh, when we're faced with it, again, it doesn't make it necessarily that it's a walk in the park type of thing, but right. it does make it uh, manageable. And as you said, a lot of times we've gone through already hard things in our life that we don't even realize that um, mm -hmm. that we've already overcome that we're even, I'm not saying harder, but have been hard. Um, and therefore, like your mom would say, you keep going and you keep, yeah. keep living, you keep living. Like she made you basically keep living your life after mm -hmm. your friend yeah. died. And, um, and that's something you did. Then when she died, you just carried on her tradition as how she guided yeah. you. Yeah. Because <laughs> she guided the reality you. is I don't want my kids to fall apart when I do it, when I go. Like the running joke is that I keep telling my wife that I'm going to – one day I'm going to write a will. And when I do, in that will, I want them to hire a comedian to come tell – at my memorial to just tell jokes about death. Mm -hmm. Like like this is not supposed to be sad. When my mom's – this is what I did forget to mention. Um, <laughs> one of the things that we did when my mom passed, we did a memorial for her. But it was not like a – we were very clear. We did not want it to be everybody's going to come and cry. This mm -hmm. is going to be – there's going to be crying. That's just what yeah. it is. And there were a few people that were invited to speak and, you know, those who yeah, we said some stuff, it was great. But then we also played games, like huge um, team games. Mm. So everybody who was there got divided into four teams. And then we did like a giant group charades. And we did this and that because it was one of the things my mom was so good at was figuring out and creating games that got people playing and talking to each other when they didn't, like icebreaker games, right? People don't know each other. She was really good at taking a big group, mixing it up, and getting everybody talking to everybody so that you didn't have the same three or four people that know each other sitting over in a corner and these people over here and everybody kind of separated. She brought everybody together. And so that's what we kind of wanted to do. And I love that idea so much. We did it at my wedding. We got 200 people to play these games and only three or four of them stayed at the tables and didn't join in. Oh my gosh. Like, I was, that is so, that must've been the most awkward. It was thing. incredible. No, the three to being the three that didn't play. Oh yeah, exactly. At that point it's like, well, now you're the weird one. You're the weird one. Good. Be weird. But like, it was really great. Cause we didn't know how that was going to go. It was like, you know, if people sit down and they don't join. That's fine. But we've, I think the groups are big enough that we won't, it won't matter if 50 people stay seated, but then everybody got up. It was so cool. And that kind of mentality for all things, not just, this is a wedding, it's a celebration, but like, no, this is a memorial. It's also a celebration. It shouldn't yeah, be sad. Yeah, I, I am a, 
I'm very against the idea of being sad at a memorial or about people who have died. Don't be sad for them. That's not reasonable. They're fine. It, whether you believe in life after death or not, if you don't believe in life after death, they've disappeared. They're not existent. They don't feel anything. If you do believe in life after death, they're in a better place. It doesn't matter. We have no reason to be sad for them. We can be sad for ourselves, but at the memorial, let's remember how wonderful they were. When my friend passed in high school or in college, I went to his house. I was, it was a weird situation for me, actually, in a way, because I was the only friend of his that he really brought into his house, into his family. Um, so I knew his aunts and uncles. I knew his cousins, um, his grandparents. I knew all of these people in his family, whereas most of our friends did not. Now, granted, he died of an overdose. So that tells you what kind of activities he was involved in. Um, so a lot of the people that he was hanging out with were um, not the most upstanding citizens. Um, so or I the ones you would socialize with or yeah, yeah. not, not, yeah. not do, not bring to family dinner. You, yeah. you were the only one that, <laughs> the only one. my only normal friend, let me bring him but, to the family dinner. Yeah. But so it was weird because, his, you know, after we did the, um, the memorial and the funeral for him and the, the burial, we all went back, everybody went back to his house, his parents' house and the family was all inside and the friends were outside. And I found myself really going back and forth, mm-hmm. you know, spending 10, 15 minutes inside, 10, 15 minutes outside, 10, 15 minutes inside. And eventually I ended up spending more time outside because the house was just so depressed. Mm-hmm. Everybody was so sad. Now granted he's nine, he was 19. Like mm-hmm. it's really tragic, but again, I don't feel bad for him now. <laughs> like at this point it's done. There's nothing we can't do anything for him and change that situation and i do believe he's in a better place anyway so what am i going to be upset about for him let's move on um and so in his situation it was the family was really caught up on the tragedy and the depression of it but the friends were outside making jokes and laughing about it and telling me and not just like making jokes but also telling really funny stories like oh dude remember when we did this and can you believe we didn't get caught for that and and that was to me, I was like, these kids kind of understand the celebration of life right now. Mm. So I'm going to go celebrate over here and spend mm. a little bit more time with them kind of thing. And I think that, that it's, it's just so, it was such a juxtaposition of like the, the way kind of many people in the world view it of like, well, we got to sit and be really sad and depressed and wail and I mean, you can do that. No judgment. If people want to do that and that's what they need, great, do it. If that helps you process, wonderful. I'm not saying you can't or shouldn't do those things. We have to go through the the grief and the sadness. It is part of the process. You can't move through it if you don't ever go through it. Mm-hmm. If you you don't can't come out the other side into the place where you where the the happy memories take over more than the sad memories, right? Mm-hmm. Like. The joy of having been a part of this person's life, in my opinion, needs to take over the sadness of losing them or else it's just miserable constantly. But so we have to go through that. I'm not saying don't go through that. To me, a memorial needs to be hilarious and telling stories of the person's life, whether they're funny or not, just like interesting aspects, things like, Oh, I didn't know that they would did that kind of thing. And I didn't know they did that. That's so cool. You know, that, like just telling cool, fun elements and celebrating the life. Like we're all going to go grieve in our own way anyway. Mm-hmm. Like the grief process is going to take a long time. This is not something that we go to a memorial exactly. and cry about it. We're done. 
it's going to yeah, be nice, exactly. but it's not. That is so true. Yeah, it doesn't mean that just because a funeral was a certain way or something like that, it, yeah. that that's just how it's going to carry on forever, for the rest of your life. It does change. It does change. Because doesn't your grief look very different now than it did, you know, nine years ago? Like, I mean, yeah, I guess it's still I, there. Wouldn't it's just, it, I wouldn't even call it grief. What would you call it at this point? At this point, it's just like, it's just a way of life now, right? Like, I'm not sad that she's gone. I'm not sad that she's passed. I'm disappointed that she didn't get to come to my wedding. I'm disappointed that she didn't get to hold her grandchildren. Like, that's disappointing. But it's not devastating. I'm not sad about it. I don't cry about it. I go, you know what? She's just holding them in a different way. She mm -hmm. hugs them in a different way. It's She knows who they are. She's aware of them. Like, you know, this is what it is. Like, this is not a thing of she's never going to experience this. She's experiencing it. It's just different. Just different. So, so to me, like the, the way, and this is my personal definition. I don't know what the, I'm not a grief therapist, so I don't know the, the clinical definition of how this works. I don't focus on it really too much. But like for me, the grief was the sadness and the pain and the crying and, and the real, the pain of it, of the loss. But I don't, I don't feel that pain of loss anymore. Now it's just an adjustment and going like, all right, well, yes, it's, I'm, I'm over the pain. I've moved over past the pain of the loss. And now it's just wonderful memories, joyful memories. Some not so, you know, not some not so great memories. She was my mom. She wasn't perfect. I've spent a lot of money with my therapist working through some stuff with her and my dad. And that's like, that's what we do. What you just said right now is so important too, because sometimes that's another thing that happens in grief is yeah. that we start focusing on all the good things about, and we forget that it was it was a regular dynamic and, you know, yeah. relationship that there were some things that weren't working that well either, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and we, and we one of the things, that. one of the things I said at the, at her memorial, her 10 year memorial we did, uh, last, uh, last year. Yeah, I have no idea. I have no idea. Yeah. Cause, she, yeah, cause, yeah, it's cause my wife was pregnant. That's right. You said yeah. 2019. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So 2019. Yeah. So it was last year, almost two years ago. But one of the things that I had said, I was doing a lot of work with my therapist around my mom at that time. And, and one of the things I shared with the, the community that came was this idea of like, right now I'm doing a lot of personal work around my mom. So I'm very angry at her for a lot of things. And that's okay. She was not perfect. Um, but I'm also very grateful because the things I'm angry at her about don't even come close to the things she was angry at her parents about. Mm. Right. So like, I'm grateful at the work that she did so that now I can do my work, but it's not even close to, to what how much she work had to do. Had to do. Yeah. Because yeah. her work, the work she had to do ended up being that also as she was working through the things of her own childhood, she was also having you right. guys be yeah. in therapy as well so that you guys could be able to work yeah. through the things as she was working through hers. It was like this mm -hmm. ladder. Right. Yeah. So, so yeah. So then right now you may not have to do the same now with Chase and Goddard. Like they may not exactly. have those things because you've been no, able well, to they'll, make it. They'll have other things, other things. They'll have other things. I'm a, you cannot, it's not possible to not screw up your kid. Uh, and actually I kind of think it's necessary because without pain, there no is way, no growth. Well, yeah, there you go. Yeah. And, and that's, that's a, that's a very good quote too, that in the, in the Baha'i writings regarding, yeah. you know, I, the, the wish you pain aspect, you know, the aspect of going mm -hmm. through something to mm -hmm. be able to grow. 
uh, through it. And you're right. And we we don't know. We're gonna, even if we like smother them with love and never <laughs> scold them, we still would mess them up, right? <laughs> well, sure, because they don't learn how to. They don't learn if all you ever do is smother them with love and everything is wonderful. They don't learn how to stand on their two feet exactly. when that's gone. Right. So it's like either way, we're gonna mess it up. So you're right. Yeah. So it's like we just so, do our best. <laughs> do the best you can. Don't worry about it. it it's funny because I've had conversations with f- family and friends and other people who are who have young kids, and they're like, "God, I'm a terrible father. I'm a terrible mother. I'm terrible at this." I'm like, "No. Does your kid have food? Do you hit yes. them? Are they going <laughs> to school? Okay, you're good enough." Now try to do better. Just do a little bit better than you can't do. Like as long as you're trying, like when you recognize that you have a weakness in something, you got to work on it. I'm not saying this as a free pass. Like do what you want. They got to grow anyway. No, it's like, but it be, it takes the pressure off for me. Like I know where my problem areas are and the things I need to work on. I'm doing the best I can in that. But I'm also not going to sit here and beat myself up because something happened. And I'm like, man, I yelled at my kid again when I really shouldn't have. Like, mm-hmm. okay, we're in the middle of a pandemic. I've been stuck with these two kids for the last nine months. Lord, my wife gets to Lord. leave. She gets to get out of the house. You know, I start falling <laughs> into that mentality. <laughs> but like, you know, you go, okay, we're all being traumatized by this pandemic. So mm-hmm. let's just cut ourselves some slack here a little bit. Mm-hmm. He's going to throw tantrums because he's six and doesn't get to play with other kids. Mm-hmm. I'm going to throw tantrums because he's six and he doesn't get to get out of the house and go to other kids' houses and, and play with and them. And you're 40, yeah. And you're 40 <laughs> and you don't get to go out and play I, yeah. with your I don't like, get to go play with other people. Like, like I don't get I my don't time. Video. Yeah, I only play well, with them on video games now. <laughs> yeah. My whole life plan got thrown upside down. Like I was supposed to be home with the baby working on my business. Instead, I'm home with a dog, a baby, and a six-year-old, a teaching assistant, a daycare assistant, and a dog trainer. And my business got pushed to the side. Like, you know, all of this, there's grief around that. Like having yeah. that would say, I would say is my mo my more, my current grief is like, I'm really frustrated that I've not been able to put the time into the business that I want because both my wife and I would like our roles to change. She wants to be home mm-hmm. with the kids. I want to be working, but I like, neither one of us are in a place right now because of the way the world is to really take steps that are necessary to, to make that flip. And you, just, you, you learn yeah, but you know, as you were saying, like even just before, because of with going through any experience helps you then go through another one, right? The mm-hmm. death of your friends in high school, you know, and then your friend when you were 19 and then, you know, with your helped you with your mom's death, then mm-hmm. also all those things with grief help you even manage some of the experiences and emotions that are going on through this grief right now that everybody's mm-hmm. experiencing you know, with your life not turning out exactly what you had planned, because that's kind of what we've had to gotten, you know, get used to that. Yeah. It, that there was a lot of curveballs a lot of times and we just kind of have oh, to yeah. go with it. And um, so, yeah, it, it, it makes us resilient. It makes us um, flexible with life, you know, and, and then we learn to dust off and keep going. And, keep going. <laughs> and, you know, it's funny, like, I really don't like a lot of the male tropes, but the one that I've been when we're at home and it's me and the boys, I try to play like slower music to kind of it's some attempt to at keeping the energy down. It doesn't really work, but I like yeah. to tell myself it does. Um, and so we listen to a lot of like Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, and stuff. And we do have talks about like, oh, this song is really sexist, or this song is really racist, and we can't listen to that song anymore. Let's turn that really? one off. Oh, I'm gonna yeah. have to 
really? Oh, wow. Oh, man. The Frank Sinatra radio station on Alex on Amazon Music is full of stuff where you're like, oh, that doesn't fly anymore. Um, <laughs> but one of the songs that's come on that kind of bothered me initially, but I've kind of recognized the beauty of it is Frank Sinatra's That's Life. Mm-hmm. Because it's like, it's all just about resiliency. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like you're on top in April, on your back in May, back on top in June. Just pick yourself up, dust yourself off and start all over again. Like you don't have to start all over again, but like figuring out how to pivot and shift. And yes. how do you, how do you just make it like keep doing it? Just keep going. You know, the other one is Dory from uh, Finding Nemo. Just keep swimming. <laughs> Just yeah, keep yeah. swimming. Just keep swimming. Like super obnoxious. When someone's telling you that, it's really obnoxious. I've definitely, with the fourteen and fifteen year olds in the rehab facilities, when they were complaining about stuff, I'd look at them. And go, Just keep swimming. They oh, didn't like that. Didn't work real well. No, and that didn't work in their grief component in that moment either. It won't work for no. somebody in that moment that you, if somebody's just gone through something. You can't just tell them, oh, right. stand up, dust off, and keep going. No, no, no. You but, can't, you know. But, but there's an but, element, there is an element of saying, don't stop. Right. Yes. You can't yeah. say just, like, in the way you talk about it, like, my mom didn't look at me and give me some cliche trope about, like, just keep going. No. She was very direct and very clear and very intent about it and was acknowledging. She was like, I know this is the hardest thing you've ever had to deal with when my friend died. She was like, I know this is really difficult. I know it's so hard. I know that all you want to do is lay in bed and watch TV and not do anything. We can't allow that to happen. You have to go back to school. Like, and so these kinds of things of like, you have to keep moving forward. You have to keep going on, even if it's just a couple of steps. Like, you know, for me, going back to school, I could be, I'm pretty sure I didn't learn anything in those first couple of weeks at school after my friend passed. I don't remember any, I don't remember what classes I was in. Like it was because it's such a blur and you're like, you know, but you're just going through the motions. Yeah. You're just just going going through the motions. But it's the mm-hmm. idea of fake it till you make it, right? You got if you if you have to go through the motions till you're back in the groove, mm-hmm. to some degree. You can't, you know. I was listening. I don't remember who it was. I picked a couple of episodes of your podcast last night to listen to, um, and one of the women was she was talking. Her husband had died, and she had two small kids. I don't remember what it was, um, mm-hmm. but she and- said something like, "Life doesn't stop just because." you know, my husband passed and I'm devastated. Like I still got to get out of bed and feed the kids. I still got to figure out, you know, we still got to go to the grocery store. We still got to make sure we got toilet paper. I got to do laundry. Like these are things that have to keep happening. You, you like, And even if that's what you're pushing and trying to do. And, and I think my mom's point was not about power through and just pretend it didn't happen. It was more about don't let this impact your, your life any more than it has to. It's already going to take up all your free time. You're already going to be sad and depressed with these friend groups, right? Like that's given and it's appropriate and it's reasonable. You're going to lose some sleep over it. You're going to stop. You're going to lose, maybe not eat as much for a little while because of it. We're going to accept all of that and just keep and and say, that's okay. But don't give things up because of it. Mm -hmm. Like don't give up school. Don't give up a job. Don't give up on a relationship. You know, like whatever, don't give up on volunteer service or, or hobbies or things like utilize these things to help you, right? Tap into those, you know, work and class became a, a, a nice 
distraction because I was like, I got to try and focus on this long enough to remember for the test what I need to know. You know, and that kind of thing. It, it becomes something to hold on to. To there's it's a for me it was going back to school, going back up to college, and going to work and stuff was a, a, a semblance of normalcy to hold on to. I I think that that is so uh, valid. And what I, for example, I'm a little bit in, well, I kept going, but I'm more the type that I do if I need to like just completely like decompress and just like do, you know feel, I actually do kind of disconnect for like a, okay. a little bit. And for me, it actually ends up helping me be able to then focus on the other things. But I'm the, I, I don't know if it has to do with the personality types too, like the doers, you know, the people that, you know, that yeah. are, are the doers and that's kind of how they navigate their grief is still the doing. For me, like, I feel like I need to like sit with it, sure. but, but it's a very fine line as you're saying before, because if somebody is a doer, for example, and it's the type that work is what keeps them kind of alive and they do let go of job, then you already are living, grieving now two things, right? The person Mm -hmm. that died and then the job that you've just let go because your life now has changed twice as much, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) You know, like it's just one more thing that you're taking away. So that I think the importance of keep going and keep doing is because if you start shifting and changing so many other things in your life, then there's other secondary griefs that a grief right. process that you'll have to get go through. And I think that, that what you said that was so important is the idea of in you were, I mean, I don't know if you said it directly, but intentionally taking time to sit in it mm-hmm. is so important. It's not about an open-ended, like my friend who dropped out of college because her father passed away. It wasn't a thing of like, well, I'll just come home and I'm going to work around the house to help get the house cleaned out, get take care of his stuff and figure these things out and do and, and move towards the working through the process. And then going back to school, there was no real end date. There was mm-hmm. no end time. So it's, I'm all about taking time and allowing for it. If there's, if it's a set period of time, mm-hmm. now maybe it needs to be extended a little bit. Maybe it can be shortened a little bit. Everybody's grieving process and timing is different. So I'm not here yeah. to say one size fits all, but what I do think is important is that if a person feels the need and can benefit from taking time, wonderful, just make sure that it's a contained time frame yes, and space yes. and that it's like, I'm going to take a week off of work or I'm going to take a week off. I'm going to not go to school for a week. I don't know any college professor that's going to be like, no, get your ass back in class. Mm-hmm, no, mm-hmm. they're going to be like, take your time, take a week. Fine. No problem. You can make up the assignments whenever you need to. No rush. Right. Like nobody's going to fault anyone for taking a week off of work or anything like that, unless you got a real, real difficult boss. (laughs) But like the idea is like for me, it's about if you're going to take that time, you have to be specific about it and intentional and that this week is for this. And I'm going to let myself lay in the bed, go literally from bed to the couch and the couch to the bed. I'm just going to eat ice cream for a week and then it's (laughs) back to daily life. Right. Or whatever it is. I I remember my, you know, what I learned about that aspect of having an end was I had a big breakup before I met my husband and my friend Mm -hmm. that I was living with. She was like, I give you three days. You're only got, you're allowed three days. You can cry for him for three days. He does not deserve a day more from you. You three days. (laughs) That's it. You cry, you weep, then you move on. Like she gave Mm -hmm. me that ultimatum three days. (laughs) So so it it's, just depends on, and it that's, really and actually, it really yeah. worked for me. Three days really of wallowing and then I moved on. 
Yeah. You know, and I've done that. Like I had, uh, I'd gotten fired from my first real job after college. Um, they hired me for a job I was not good for and I was not capable of, and I didn't have the skills for. And after three weeks, they let me go. I think the guy did it on purpose just to get rid of me. Um, cause I, I didn't turn there for a year. So he kind of had to offer me a job, but he didn't really want me. So whatever. Anyway, um, I got fired. I came home. I called my girlfriend at the time and she drove up. She was about an hour and a half away. She drove up and, and hung out for the day. And, um, the next morning, she went home and the next day, the next morning I woke up and my mom got, I was kind of moping around the house a little bit. And my mom was like, okay, you had yesterday, you called, you did a good thing. You called a friend and got some support and did that. Great. Um, now that job, you know, similar conversations your, your roommate had with you. Like she's like, yeah. it wasn't a good job for you anyway. So now you need mm-hmm. to start the process of finding a job. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, Okay. Well, that's a little fast, but okay, <laughs> you know, but it's, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's this idea of like, do what needs to be done, recognizing that whether you're grieving a, a death, a loss of a relationship because there's, there's a breakup or somebody moves or, you know, something breaks, you know, whatever it is, or a project that falls through or someone's writing a book and then someone else comes publishes a book that's the exact same thing. You know, like mm. you, you, we need to grieve the loss of that energy and that effort and that time. It's going to take a while. You can do that while you're doing other things. Right. Like, so take some time at the beginning to sit in it and be sad and, and move through that stuff. Great. Wonderful. But don't let that take over life. Yes. And what that looks like is different. For me, it means I can't really stop at all. If I stop, I'm done. Like I need to just keep moving. As long as I'm moving forward, I will be able to process and and deal with whatever I need to deal with in the free time. If I stop, getting started for me, whatever it is, is super hard. It takes so much more energy for me to get something started. And so once it's going, I can't can't stop or I'm going to like really fall down. So like even in the pandemic, my, I'm still seeing clients. It's only a few. I think I'm down to two right now, but I'm like, I can't just close and give up on clients right now because I'll never open the practice again if I do. Mm -hmm. And I'll just be real miserable. I have to keep, I'm like, I have a consulting uh, person that I go see. Oh, it's a uh, kind of program thing that I do for my business. I still go to the meetings every two weeks. I'm still active on the Facebook group as much as I can be. I listen to the, this dude's podcast. I'm, I'm in no way, shape or form in a place where I can build, really put time and energy into my business. By the time the, the boys go to bed, the last, the only thing I can do is fall on the couch, right? I'm just mm-hmm. exhausted. So the idea of doing other work is just not realistic right now for me in my life. But like other doors open and other things have come up that I'm like, all right, I got it. As long as I just keep moving, just keep it moving. Even if it's just seeing these two clients every other week. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and sorting things out and figuring it out. That's, that's good enough for now. As long as it's still doing something, then it's not completely stopped. And I'm not just giving up on it. Cause I think for me and my brain stopping equates giving up. 
Yeah, and that's important to know exactly what yeah. you're saying is knowing who you are, your personality around any area of your life to know how it is that you navigate all these different situations. And what you're saying that it takes actually more energy to start again, like a car. It is very true. It's like I'm thinking of it like a car, right? You turn off mm -hmm. the car, you know, a lot more energy actually sometimes yeah. goes in than if you would have just left it on, even running, yep. even if you're waiting for somebody at the store, you probably use less gas or energy. You just do. Leaving it running, right? You know, then science it proves that. Yeah. So then turning it off and coming back on. So that's, that's a, a, an actual physical example of the aspect of using energy. And that yeah. goes into this ourselves as well, when we just completely just stop doing something to then try to take 100%. off. Again. Yeah. 100%. So, and so no, and that's, oh my gosh. that's me. That's my yeah. personality. And that's who I am. And so for me, when my mom says, don't let it take you out, I'm like, I can't skip anything. I think when my, when my friend passed away, I missed uh, two days of school total. The day I went home after the day after he passed away and the day his memorial and funeral, his funeral. That was it. When my mom passed away, I missed, uh, it was grad school. So each class was only once a week, but I missed that whole first week of class. So I missed like three classes. But then you yeah, went well, back to free therapy. <laughs> yeah, I know. But I had like, so it was three in, I missed one class from each of the three classes I was, uh, courses I was taking. Like mm -hmm. I wouldn't let myself do more than that because I was like, I can't, if I, if I, if I stay in this for too long, I'm just going to be miserable and mm -hmm. it's going to go down and I'm not going to go back to school. I'm going to just say, you know what, screw it. And then I've got all these student loans for nothing. <laughs> mm -hmm. No, thank you. That it's been really, really good to hear this other perspective. Cause I am one of, again, like I said, I am one of those that would sit with things. I'm like, you need time, go ahead, take it. But you're right mm -hmm. in terms of making it having it have a timeline a little bit, even though grief doesn't have a timeline, like you said, for everybody's right. not the same, right. knowing that you have to kind of, uh, for the heavy part of the grief, uh, when I, I feel like grief continues, it just changes. Like you said, sometimes yeah. it looks like disappointment. Sometimes it looks like this, oh mm -hmm. man, I'm so bummed she wasn't here for my wedding. Like, so maybe those, ex those emotions of the missing them in some shape or form kind of come up, but not in the sadness, but more the missing component yeah. of them. Um, so, so yeah, so I, um, I, I've learned so much from your perspective. So thank you. My pleasure. I think I, it's funny because I always struggle a little bit with the, the grief never ends mentality. Mm -hmm. Um, now this is coming from, and again, this is from my perspective as a therapist who worked in substance use, I have dealt with far too many clients that use that as an excuse to continue mm. using or to let their lives fall apart. Um, whether it's for themselves or it's the family members trying to, you know, enable their, their, fa their loved one to continue using where they go, well, you know, he, his father did hit him that one time, two years ago. I'm like, yeah, we mm. can be over that. We can have moved past that by now. He doesn't get to continue using drugs because as of that. A scapegoat. I'm sorry. Not using yeah. it as a scapegoat. It becomes a scapegoat. And, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Yeah. and I, I, I agree with it. I, mm -hmm. It is true. Grief does not end. There is no timeline for it. There's no set prescription for it, how it works. It's different in everyone. But I think what, what I, sh uh, but that becomes a mantra for people to allow themselves to sink deeper and deeper and deeper. I'm sure that my friend who dropped out of college was not like, sweet, I'm dropping out of college. This is wonderful. No, she like had every intention to go back, but mm -hmm. then was just wallowing in the sadness for so long yeah. 
that it, it was no longer processing. It became just wallowing in self-flagellation um, and become self-punishment, right? Mm-hmm. So it, we have to be careful as we go through our grief work um, to make sure that we're using, we're doing it productively. As yes. long as a person is doing their grief work productively, I don't care how long it takes. If they're actively working on it and trying to to push through it, but if they're laying at home and they're just getting depressed and worse and and it's not and it's not moving at all, then I start to question. And this is my therapist brain plus substance, you know, all of that stuff is kind of yeah. kicking in here. Yeah, you're I start to you're go like, all right, you're now you're just laying in this. Mm-hmm. Now you're choosing to just this is self pity and wallowing and not productive anymore. So I think it's just important to keep that in mind that it will take as long as it needs to take, but we can choose to make it longer than it needs to be. Mm-hmm. Well, because also it's uh, st- stuff starts coming up in terms of not only can you use it as a scapegoat. My gosh, we could go on for it. I'm like looking at. I'm know. like, oh my gosh, we could do part one, Talk part about two. This for days. Uh, I know the the part about um, of it being. Um, also that we get comfortable, uh, how do we, it becomes yeah. part of our identity and mm-hmm. then our self-pity for ourselves, but then mm-hmm. also others, the attention we may get from others mm-hmm. that know that we've gone through something that's hard oh, totally. also becomes something we're gaining. So we might've lost something, but then if we are also enjoying the attention that may come from the fact that, that now we have this label of of something and again i i and i this doesn't happen in every case but i do want to say that i think i used the victim card for a long time with my sister passed away like you know mm-hmm. like and um and a lot of the excuses in my life of why I wasn't moving forward and not, there weren't excuses per se, but there were reasons of it. Mm-hmm, but then mm-hmm. it's like, okay, now, you know, the why now do something about it. Now, yeah. you know, why you don't plan, know how to plan a five-year plan, you know, because of X, Y, Z of people dying young around your life, you know what I mean? Whatever it is mm-hmm. now do something about it. So that's, that is, um, that is another reason that sometimes people just kind of like life, like yeah. to live in their grief rather mm-hmm. than like, with it, you know, like yeah. kind of traveling in life with it. It's like, I, I, I compare it to like having like this, a bag, like or a purse or backpack on you. But mm-hmm. when you were like living in it, it's like being stuck inside, like a sleeping bag and intending to walk through life inside yeah. that sleeping bag. Like you can't, mm-hmm. you can't, that's not how you can carry it. You have to carry right. it with you and it becomes lighter as you go through life. Yep. Um, or you become stronger. One or the other. Probably <laughs> both. You know, both. Yeah, hopefully so. both. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully both. Uh, this has been yeah. so awesome. Thank you so much. I laughed. I laughed. I, yeah. I had a lot of aha moments. It's been great. Thank you so much, Dave. And thank My you to pleasure. Roz and the kiddos, too, for yeah. for allowing Daddy to have this which is video game time, me time, to be a podcast very recording nice. time. So I'm very <laughs> grateful again for your time, Dave. My pleasure. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. And if you want, can do you have any um, page or can I put anything in the notes for people that are in the area or for when you have your, I don't know if your website's still in development. Yeah. For your own no, it's up. I need to redo it, but it's up and it gets kind of the point across, but it's grammarfamilytherapy.com. Okay. Um, and I'm in, you know, I'm licensed in California, so I can work with anybody in the state of California. Perfect. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you. And I'll make sure and that actually, to get the actual spelling that so that I can put that yeah. on my, and the show. Sure. Yeah. Thank you again. My pleasure. Thank you. Bye.
Thank you again so much for choosing to listen today. I hope that you can take away a few nuggets from today's episode that can bring you comfort in your times of grief. If so, it would mean so much to me if you would rate and comment on this episode. And if you feel inspired in some way to share it with someone who may need to hear this, please do so. Also, if you or someone you know has a story of grief and gratitude that should be shared so that others can be inspired as well, please reach out to me. And thanks once again for tuning in to Grief, Gratitude, and the Gray in Between podcast. Have a beautiful day.